Alrighty, Grace Church, Medina East Campus, 11 o'clock service. How you guys doing today? Oh yeah, I like that. My name is Dan. I lead student ministries here uh, at the Medina East Campus. So me and my wife and our awesome team lead uh, all the kids from 6th through 12th grade. We actually have uh, a room called the Upper Room here in this building. A lot of people that are kind of newer don't know. We actually have like a, a separate space for the youth. So like I said, me and my wife hang out with 6th uh, through 12th graders, and we just try to show them the love of Jesus, teach them about bible stuff. And so it's just a really cool and unique privilege to have an opportunity to, to come downstairs and to talk to you today. And, and to be honest with you, I work primarily with youth, so I'm gonna kind of just keep rolling on that gravy train. In fact, do I have any? I'm looking around the room to see where are my where are my people at? Do I have any? Woot woot. Where 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 are my youth? Where are my youths at? Hold on, I'm looking for people in particular. Oh, Madonna East. All right, cool. Now I know that I'm speak. I know who to, I'm preaching primarily in this region. Over there. So you guys are all invited. I'm preaching here. Bing. Anyway, like I said, I don't even know where I am. Train of thought. Okay, so we're in this series. My name's Dan. I lead student ministries. We're in this series called God is Not. And what we're talking about is that we all come to the idea of God or to this kind of conception of who God is with different assumptions or different like uh, sort of beliefs or pre sort of pre-established notions of who God is. We come with these assumptions. And what we want to do in this series, it's going to be a five-week series. This is week uh, two. And what we're trying to do is to say, man, maybe these assumptions are actually inaccurate. And maybe the things that I think about God based on my experiences or like some fear or some pain that I've experienced in my life kind of um, misrepresents who God actually is. And so what we're trying to do is look through a really famous passage of scripture called Psalm 23. It's a six-verse uh, poem in the book of Psalms, and it's a, po- it's a poem that is kind of intended to evoke a kind of emotional response to who God is. But what we're doing is we're saying, uh, in this series, we've kind of developed this like metaphor, and it, and it sort of surrounds this idea of uh, an old-school photograph, like an old-school vintage camera, like click with film and stuff like that. And so how that works is, uh, you know, light comes into a camera lens, and it... And it sears or kind of, it kind of like impresses an image, it burns an image onto a film negative. And it's the exact opposite. It's the, it's the, it's the negative. It's the opposite picture of what the true picture is. And so a lot of times what happens in our life, we think about God, we're like, man, we have this jacked up, tattered, and confused and blurry picture of who God is. I'm trying to figure out who God is. I'm trying to look at this picture of him, but I can't see it. The life that I'm living right now, the distractions, the fear, the confusion is jacking up my ability to see this picture clearly. And so sometimes it's really important to look back at the negative, at something definitively that God is not in order to more fully recognize who God actually is. And so that's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at Psalm 23. We're looking at real clear things that that passage of scripture asserts about who God is. And then we're making like real definitive statements about who God is not so that we can more clearly develop that into who God actually is and have a sweet and clear relationship with him. So that's what we're doing. And one of the big ways we wanna help you guys engage with Psalm 23 or with scripture in general is by memorizing scripture. And so we're going to be recommending this app called Scripture Typer. Scripture Typer, you can find it for free on the App Store. And what it does is you download it, and then you pick whatever version of the Bible you're comfortable with, and you can load that pa- passage of Scripture into Scripture Typer, and then it kind of leads you through a series of sort of challenges and tests and ways to, to click through helping you memorize. And then eventually, you can just like click the first letter of each word and type out the verse and it helps you memorize. And so we're challenging everybody, whether or not you follow Jesus. Again, like Tommy said, if it's your first time here or if you're investigating Jesus, we count it a legit honor and privilege and blessing that you would take time out of your schedule to come to this warehouse and like chill with us and and hear us talk about Jesus and try and share his love with you. So if it's your first time or you're just visiting or investigating Jesus, you are our people. We love you and we're glad you're here. But what you can do, get Scripture Typer, download that, and then uh, load Psalm 23. It's six verses. You can load that into Scripture Typer, and it'll guide you through how to, how to memorize. A highly recommended app, me, my wife, a lot of the members of my, my team on Student Ministries, and a lot of people on staff here at Grace love that app and use it to, to great advantage. So Psalm 23, Scripture Typer. And uh, what, what we landed on last week, Pastor Seth kind of gave the introduction uh, the, the introductory uh, t- teaching, and he 
landed on this idea that as we look at Psalm 23, as we think about what it means to relate with him and interact with God Almighty, the the Bible makes it real clear that God is not indifferent, that God is personal. And that's gonna be the kind of guiding principle for the whole series, the the reality that God isn't some aloof, distant, far-off God that doesn't care about my business and doesn't care about my relationships and doesn't care about my stuff, but that God actually wants to have a, a personal involvement and an interaction with me, with my life, and with the circumstances of my life. I think Seth did an amazing job last week, and if you uh, didn't get a chance to hear that series, I highly recommend that you uh, check it out. You can get our, our, church, our church app, the Grace Church app, or you can go online, medinaeast.graceohio.org, and you can check it out that way, but it's one of the sweetest sermons ever in the history of mankind. But what uh, basically where he landed was like, look, I believe this to be true. God is not indifferent. It says it clearly in Psalms and all over the place. God is not indifferent. God is personal. But what happens a lot of times in the lives of people that follow Jesus, in the, in the, in the lives of people that are Christians or claim to be followers of Christ, is that they live in this reality called functional atheism. Functional atheism, it, sound, it sounds kind of like a fancy pants term, but it really applies to a lot of people, including myself. I often personally am here to confess that functional atheism sort of guides the way I live a lot of times. Seth defined it like this. He said, functional atheism is believing in a personal God who's always around and longs to guide us in the adventure, yet living day to day like he doesn't exist or he's too indifferent to care, right? And that's a pretty, a pretty heavy duty um, thing to, to, to confess, like, man, I... I I I do believe that there is a God and that he's real and that he has a desire to be involved in my life and that he actually created the universe and that this life could actually be this really sweet adventure where I like follow him and like through all these twists and turns in my life and it's this crazy adventure. I believe that's true. I mean, I check yes in, in the do I believe that to be true box. Yes, I believe that to be true, but I often operate in functional atheism. That's, that's true of me. It's just believing in a personal God who's always around, longs to guide us in the adventure, but living day to day like he doesn't exist or is too indifferent to care. And what crashes up against this functional atheism that, that, I, that occurs in my life, even as I am trying to be a legit follower of Jesus, is, is uh, poetry, interestingly. Because what poetry does, Seth contrasted poetry with, with prose, okay? So these are two different literary forms, and prose kind of delivers information in these blocks of just kind of like easier to understand, tell you what to do, don't smoke cigarettes, help old ladies across the street, like don't go to church all the time, kind of, you know, and and that's sort of, in some ways, the Bible teaches us things that are really important and good to know, right? Like it's good to know to not be a jerk. The Bible actually teaches don't be a jerk, so that's not part of my sermon, but it's true. And, um, but like, so that's just like, okay, I got these rules, I got this stuff, you're teaching me these definitive things, just, you're just giving me the facts, Jack, and that's cool because I need to know some facts. But what poetry does, as we're dealing with this functional atheism thing, as we're dealing with the idea that like, man, I believe that like God is real and true, but I wanna, I, you know, I often operate like, I don't, like he's not involved in my life. What poetry does is it says, man, you can actually interact with God at a sort of emotional level. There's a, there's a sort of element that, that is kind of almost guttural or, or deep down in your heart and in your experience as you're crying out to him or when you're involved in all these challenges and the confusion of life that so often occurs or the pain or the fear or the frustration. You know, we need sometimes more than just a list of facts. Lists of facts are extremely important and good and true. And we, you know, here at Grace Church affirm the Bible to be true and the things that the Bible teaches to be accurate and correct and beautiful and good. But there's also elements of a a relationship with Jesus that is emotional and that is almost whimsical and and kind of enchanted and and, and fun and free and, and, and emotional and exciting. Okay, and so what we're going to be doing in this series, it's real cool for me because I'm more on the whimsical, I'm a little more on the whimsical side. Check this out. It's just, you know what I mean? As an example. So what we're doing in this series is get into the whimsical stuff. Teach, 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 and then a little whim, whimsy. I think that's how you pronounce it. Whim. Whim. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Psalm 23. Whimsically, whimsically, and it's on page 382 in those black Bibles uh, that are all spread out in the chairs in front of you or behind you or wherever. Uh, you can also find Psalm 23 on an app. If you don't have a Bible app, it's super easy and cool to get one. We recommend the Version app. You can find it on the App Store, and you can pick whatever translation you want there. There's reading plans. It's real sweet. So however you want to get there, Psalm 23, it's 382 in those black Bibles. And we say this every week, too. Um, like, if you don't own a Bible... 
you just, you, you know, you've, maybe you, you, you um, or if maybe somebody gave you a Bible a long time ago and it's like an older translation and there's words you don't really understand or that don't really seem to make sense to you, you could t- actually take one of our Bibles right now and just write your name in it and make it a gift from us to you. We think here at the Medina East Camp, Campus that it is like super duper important that you have a Bible. So if you don't have one, please take one. And if you do have one at home or here, just look at it and be like, oh yeah, because Bibles are real cool. So Psalm 23 page 382, just get there, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, but first, I got to tell you guys this story about when I was a teenager, because, you know, we're trying to talk about emotional stuff, and we're trying to talk about, like, interacting with God in an emotionally resonant way, and I think, I, as I have learned recently, uh, like, working with youth, that, that um, like, the teenage years are really, like, emotionally intense time, and so I was thinking back to a story in my life that occurred in my teens, and I think uh, it kind of corresponds to what we're going to be talking about. So once upon a time, I was 18 years old. I was a hard worker. My parents kind of taught me how to, how to work from a pretty early age. I had a lot of kind of hard jobs. I was a paper boy. I had, uh, I, like, helped do office cleaning, and I, um, I had this company called, I started a company called Dan's Dependable Delivery when I was like 11 years old. If you need some eggs or bacon, butter or fried rice, just give me a call. I'll deliver for you at a very reasonable price. <laughs> so actually, my career here at Medina East has just been a ploy to, to eventually advertise my delivery service. <laughs> so I need some investors. I'm looking around the room. No, I'm kidding. So anyway, where was it? Oh, yeah, so I had this. I, I, that, those, I, had, I was a hard worker. I was a hard worker. I got this job when I was 18, my first official like job interview kind of style job, working for this company that would haul garbage and trash and like junk at people's houses or whatever. If, they, if there was maybe like a foreclosure or something, an investor bought a house to fix it up, but it was all full of junk and, and piled up with stuff, we would come in take all the stuff, right? And so I've been working on this comp- working with this company for a couple weeks. My boss had left the corporate world to start this, to, to, to buy this franchise for this section of uh, Ohio. I was the first employee in this company, and I've been working for about two weeks knowing full well that I was a hard worker. I wanted to do, do a good job, show up on time, work hard. And, and I had been doing that. You know, we kind of developed a relationship where he, he could tell, like, I, I was trying to get it done for him, you know? But we pulled up to this house about two weeks in, and, we, and there was this house that was just overwhelmingly stuffed with, like, all this stuff. There was just a mountain of tires and, like, boxes of VHS tapes and bags of clothes and just all kind of totally filled to the brim everywhere in the backyard, just piled up and whatever. And at that time, because my, my boss had, had just started this new company and left the corporate world where he kind of had a comfortable thing to try to pursue the dream of, like, having his own kind of freedom and whatever, uh, owning a franchise, he, he was kind of stressed out, you know what I mean? There were challenges in his life. Internally, he was thinking about the fact that he was like kind of uh, the parent of a, a new parent and the, the strain in his marriage because of the financial concerns of starting a new company and, you know, is he going to make it? Is he going to succeed? And he had all these kind of things swirling in his mind. In, in conjunction with arriving at this house, like I said, about two weeks in for me, where there was just this overwhelming assortment of of garbage and stuff that we had to deal with quickly. And so as we're pulling up to this house, I am preparing my heart and my mind and my body to like really work as hard as I possibly can when we get there. I see this stuff, we're pulling up to it, and I'm like, I'm gonna work so hard. So I uh, unscrew this bottle of Sprite that I have and take a little swig of Sprite, and as I start to like screw the bottle cap back on, I think my boss is gonna like pull up and turn around in the lane to like go, to be heading in the other direction because he had informed me that he had to take, he was gonna drop me off and, and like go do some small businessman stuff, probably some kind of notary. I think he was, he was always going to the notary. It was some kind of notary thing. But he was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bounce out to the notary. I'm gonna drop you off. Anyway, I thought he was gonna turn around, but instead, as I'm like taking the swig of my Sprite, he just throws it into park and jumps out of the truck really quick. And so here I am, you know, two weeks in trying to make a name for myself or whatever. And I'm like scrambling to screw the lid back on the bottle to put it in the lunchbox and like undo my seatbelt to get out so I can like hop to attention and be like, yes, sir, I'm a good worker. Here I am ready to work hard because I'm a good hard worker guy, right? But what happened was he threw it in park and jumped out of the truck real quick, like before I got a chance to jump out to like show him that I was a hard worker. And then he made this assumption about me and kind of like got up in my grill. And what he said was, Dan, I don't have time for you messing around, wasting time, being weak and lazy today. We got to get to work. We got a lot of stuff to do. We got to get going. Let's go. 
don't be weak, right? Which to me and my sensitive 18-year-old self, that really hurt my feelings. That really hurt my feelings pretty bad because I was like, dude, I'm hard. I've been a hard worker forever. Like, I know, I'm planning on working hard. So that really hurt my feelings. It made me kind of upset and, and angry. You know, I'm, I'm 18 years old and it kind of like so angry that I was almost like choking back tears and really bummed out. So anyway, I'm kind of working through that, and then he goes to show me in this kind of tone of like aggressive, like, you don't know what's going on. Come on, get it together. So he goes and shows me this pile of tires, and he's like, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna start bringing that pile of tires from the back of this house up to the front by the road, and then I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave, you start working on the tires. When I get back from the notary, I'm gonna help you finish the tires, and then we're gonna go down in the basement. And he takes me down the basement, and he shows me this huge pile of um, Formica countertops, all right? So for some reason, whoever had lived there previously was all about Formica countertops. And so this whole basement was totally full of Formica, <laughs> Formica countertops. And he's like, you do the start on the tires, I'm gonna come back, help you with the tires, and then when I get back, we're gonna do these countertops together because they're stupid heavy. And I was like, all right. Fine. So he leaves. I'm furious, like Yosemite Sam, steam coming out of my ears, just like, he doesn't even know, you know, dance dependable delivery. And like, and trying to like work through all that stuff, right? And, and I'm so furious and hurt and upset that I work real hard. Like some people, when they get bummed out, kind of like slow down. Not me. I work way faster. If you want to get a good day's work out of me, insult me. And then I will work really hard. And so maybe that was his, maybe he was, his Jedi mind trick and he actually knew how to get the best work out of me. I don't know. But anyway, so he leaves. I start working on these tires and I get all of them done. I mean, I'm like blazing a trail, like blaze glory, just like tires. And I'm like stacking them up perfectly, like columns of the Parthenon. Like, this is gonna be perfect. He doesn't even know. Work since I was five years old, paper out. So anyway, I get done with that. I get done with that. I'm done. Dude's not back yet, all right? He's not back, so I'm like, I'm gonna go check out those countertops. They're too heavy. So I go down in the basement, look at these countertops, and I pick one up, stupid, annoying, heavy, just like a joke, right? But I was like, no, weak and lazy. He doesn't even know who he's messing with. I'm Dan Miller. So I pick one up. I get it up to, to be able to carry it up the stairs. I do that, and then I'm like, I'm just gonna get all these countertops before dude shows up to be like, Meh. so I do carry all these countertops up, stack them perfectly. I mean, it's just like, there's the Parthenon, there's the, like, I don't even know what a good architecture thing would be to reference right now. Like, the Sphinx. It's the Sphinx in the Parthenon. And I'm like, yeah, I did it. So dude rolls up. I'm sitting there. I finished up drinking my Sprite, the infamous Sprite, and like, Dude is like, uh, wow, like he shows up. Wow, you, you got all those tires done. That's good. You got all this work done. Great. Uh, who, uh, what did he say? Who, who, who helped you with those countertops? Did you, who, who helped you with those countertops? Those are so heavy. It's ridiculous. And I was like, serious, no joke, choking back tears. Like, I didn't know if I should cry or yell or run away or curl up in a ball. And I was like, who, who helped you with those countertops? No one. And then he was like, oh, this is so sweet. He was like, wow, you know, those countertops are heavy. And I, no joke, looked him in the eyes, like man voice. And I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> and so then, whatever, we worked it out. Eventually, later that day, he apologized for getting snippety with me in the morning. And we worked it all out. Uh, and he started, you know, we, we bonded and we were cool. We got it together. But... The reason why I'm telling you that story is because I think a lot of times, for real, that we all um, interact with God sometimes in the way that my old boss interacted with me, right? We've got all this junk, got all this confusion. We got these, these things like internally, fears, frustrations, pain, confusion. We've got things uh, externally, like our, our job is, is maybe falling apart, our rela some relationship is falling apart. I'm struggling with you know, really severe depression or, or mental health issues or addiction or, uh, or something very significant and it's there and it's real and there's this junk that's all around me. And I'm like, God, I want you to snap to attention and help me out and hook me up. Are you weak? What's the deal? My picture of you is tattered and confused and, 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 and not clear because, you know, I, I can't see through the fog of my circumstances to a clear picture of you. 
And so that's what we wanna do. Again, in this series is we wanna see, we wanna look at God and say, the, the Bible presents God as a God who is strong. But man, I sometimes feel like he's weak. In my experience, it feels like he's weak. Is that true? My assumption is that maybe he's kind of weak. And so we're gonna look at that and talk about that. But my, my um, desire for you guys today in this room right now is to genuinely in your heart, to the extent that it is possible for you to be uh, honest with yourselves and to be open to God uh, like doing something in your heart. And I know not everybody in this room follows Jesus. There are people in this room that are just trying to figure it out. But I'm begging you to just uh, to take the next 20 to 30 minutes and open your heart up to the possibility that God wants to speak to you and that he wants to, 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 to be a part of your life. The infinite personal God wants to involve himself in your life. I don't know where you guys are coming from. I don't know the pain that you've experienced or, or the diagnosis that you just found out about or the money thing or the relationship thing. Whatever it is, I just ask that you right now, as clearly as you can, identify that thing, bring it to the front of your mind as we look at this passage of scripture that talks about who God is and how he interacts with us in those circumstances, in that junk, in that confusion. Okay, so we're doing that in Psalm 23, and here it is, page 382. We're actually going to only look at the first five words of Psalm 23. Incredibly beautiful. Again, we recommend that you memorize it. Gorgeous, and it's, it's gorgeous literature, so even if you don't follow Jesus, it's cool to memorize poetry. So highly recommend that you check it out. Psalm 23, the first five words, uh, a guy by the name of David wrote it, and he says this, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Very famous, very famous words from the Bible, right? And so what's happening in David's life as he writes this, these, these five words, very famous, is we, we're not entirely sure, but it's very likely that as David was writing this, he was in a season of, of his life that was very uh, challenging. And there's a very high likelihood that he was in some kind of war or battle. He had a lot of tumultuous situations and, and kind of jacked up relationships. There were always political battles and all these different challenges. And so at some point uh, in, in the mix of David's life where he's, he's experiencing war and, and, and um, oppression and, and all these different things, he writes these words, the Lord is my shepherd. And so we, I think we can really relate, right? We can really relate to somebody who's trying to figure it out, trying to get it together, dealing with all these problems, and to cry out emotionally, not just by making statements of, of, uh, of like clearly defined definitive fact, but of saying, man, the Lord is my shepherd, some kind of emotional uh, in, engagement with, with the concept or the idea of God. The reason why Lord here is all capitalized, this is extremely important to note as you look at your Bible or up on the screen, all, all caps refers to something very specific. So Psalm 23 was written originally in the Hebrew language. And so when we're reading it in the English, this is actually a translation of, of an ancient language called Hebrew. And every time you see the word Lord in your Bible capitalized like that, it's, it's a translation of this word Yahweh. So Yahweh is actually, this is one of the most critical and important things to know about. Uh, Yahweh occurs like 6,500 times uh, in the first part of the Bible called the Old Testament. And Yahweh is God's personal name. Okay, so when it says the Lord is my shepherd, it's really saying Yahweh is my shepherd. And Yahweh is the personal name, the personal name of God. Not just the concept of God, not just some kind of like idea about God, but yet God himself, his personal name revealed to his people, Yahweh, his personal name. In fact, uh, th this, this word Lord, like I said, it occurs like 65, a, few, a little bit over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Another really interesting place is uh, in Psalm 37, verse four. And Psalm 37, four says, take delight in the Lord. Take delight in Yahweh, the personal name, the personal name of God. Take delight in this person and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think the reason why I'm pressing down on, into this so hard is because I think a lot of times in our culture, as we're all trying to like get along and, and, and engage with each other and be kind of progressive and, and kind and reasonable, sometimes we lose the fact that this is re referring to someone very specific. A lot of times, even in my own life, to be honest with you, sometimes when I think about the word Lord, I think of it as this kind of vague a sort of abstract concept of God as like a sparkly cloud that just like sends good vibes sometimes, I guess, right? And, and, and what the Bible is teaching us is that no, actually this is a very specific personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. Not sparkly good vibes, Yahweh, the personal name of Almighty God. And I think that one of the ways this 
verse and this word and this idea is sort of subtly misunderstood in our culture. It's important to call it out because it's, it's, a minor, it's a minor distinction that leads to some really tragic misunderstandings about who God is and how he interacts with us. And I think one of the ways that um, a misunderstanding of this word and this name is uh, the ways that this is misunderstood is, is communicated to us in this quote by one of my favorite people, Oprah Winfrey. All right, so Oprah, I love me some Oprah. I'm sure you straight. I love Oprah. But referring to this verse, I think Oprah s- says something that might be a little bit skewed. In fact, I'm very confident that her understanding of this word and of this verse, in an interview, she was asked, like, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And she said, Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord. Take delight in the personal name of God. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And this is what Oprah said about that verse uh, in an interview uh, on the Colbert Report a couple years ago. Oprah, referring to this verse, says, Lord, yeah, referred like 37, Psalm 37, 4, Yahweh, Yahweh, the personal name of God. Lord has a wide range. Lord has a wide range. What is Lord? Compassion, love, forgiveness, kindness. So you delight yourself in those virtues where the character of the Lord is revealed. Delight thyself in goodness. Delight thyself in love, kindness, and compassion, and you'll receive the desires of your heart. Don't you like that? And that's cool. And and, and the thing is, God is good, and he is lovely, and he's kind, and he's compassionate, but his individual virtues are not God himself. It's good. Goodness, you know, it's good to, like, change your oil, right? It's good to like enjoy like frolicking around in a, on a rainy day, like, and have fun. But like changing your, like good uh, preventative maintenance practices in your car is not God. Um, like the feeling you get when you eat a really delicious ice cream cone is not God. Yahweh is God. And there's a huge distinction between saying, oh yeah, some good vibe, like serving at a soup kitchen and like feeling all nice and lovey-dovey is God. Because it's not. God has a name, and it's Yahweh. Lord, and this, this sentence is incorrect. I love you, Oprah. Lord, the, the, the correct sentence would be, Lord does not have a wide range. Because Yahweh is a person's name. The definitive name of Almighty God. I think a way to illustrate this would be if you took, like you guys all have names, right? I'm pretty, pretty con- Raise your hand if you have a name. Okay, so you got Carl and Melinda and Sebastian and uh, I'm trying to think of a funny name to say so you guys will like me more. Uh, well, Shakira over there and whatever, right? And, <laughs> all right, so you got all these different names, right, of people and that's their name. So as an example, my wife has it. You guys all have names, people know your name, right? Oh, there's Shakira. I know about her. She's Shakira. And I, I have a name tattooed on my arm, actually. It's my wife's name, Charlotte. Right? I have a relationship with her. Her name is Charlotte. She's my wife. She, had, she and I have kids together. We live together. We have a relationship. We have memories and experiences together. And her name is Charlotte. But I think, and so that's pretty, this is obvious and pretty clear that if a person is a person and they have a name, when you call that name, it's that person. But I think what happens is um, if we apply this same kind of formula or the same kind of logic to Charlotte, It would look something like this. Charlotte, the personal name of my wife, has a wide range. What is Charlotte? Beauty, brown eyes, smells good, contagious laugh. So you delight yourself in those virtues where the character of Charlotte is revealed. Delight yourself in beauty. Delight yourself in brown eyes, pleasant smells, and a contagious laugh. Yeah, delight yourself in contagious laughter, and you'll receive a great marriage. Don't you like that? And I'm like, I, well, if I delighted myself in every woman that smells good and has brown eyes, I would not have a good marriage, right? So I'm like, I love you, Oprah, but like, actually, I think Oprah has brown eyes and smells good, and she definitely isn't my wife. So anyway, all I'm saying is I love you, Oprah, but the God that we serve and worship as people who follow Jesus has a name, and it's Yahweh. In fact... Jesus, the name Jesus actually means Yahweh saves, which is another topic for another day. All I'm trying to say is when David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he's referring to somebody real specific. He's not referring to a vibe. He's not referring to like being a goody-goody two-shoes and like, 
you know, going vegan. He's talking about the dude, all right, Yahweh. And he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The dude I can know and have a relationship with and interact with is my shepherd. And like we're saying, like I'm saying in, like today and in this series, like this emotional thing where we're trying to relate and interact with God more than just on a like bullet point level, but to let the truth of who he is all the way deep down into our stomachs. It's really fascinating that David refers to the Lord as his shepherd, because when David was a teenager, he actually had some experiences that he might be thinking about or referring to. I remember not that long ago when I, well, kind of long ago, I guess I'm getting older, but like when I was like 19, 20, I, I poured concrete, right? And which is a really hard job. And, and I still, to this day, when I think about working hard, when I think about really going for the gusto, I remember what it's like to pour concrete. And I think, now that is hard work. And I have this emotional I have this emotional relationship. Like when I see people pouring concrete, I'm like, I know what that's like. It's hard. You're tough. You're strong. And it does something to me emotionally more than just like a bullet point thing. So David, talking about the Lord being his shepherd, a really interesting passage to us, for us is found in 1 Samuel 17, 32 through 37, page 197. And as David, the dude who says, the Lord, the personal name of God, Yahweh, is my shepherd, this is a guy who in his past, this, this experience that we're about to read occurred in his life. And this is what he says. David said to Saul, there was this king whose name is Saul. He's the king of this group of people called the Israelites. And there was this other group of people called the Philistines. And they, the Philistines is a very famous story. It's David and Goliath. And this dude, Goliath, is this big, strong, tough guy. And he's like, you know, Israelites, I'm tough. I'm going to get you. And so David sees this happening. The, the Israelite army is trying to fight. You know, it's this big battle that's about to, to go down. And so Goliath calls out Israel, the Israelites, and he's like, just send one person to come fight me. Come on, let's, get, let's go. And so this is all happening. And David, who is the guy that wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, David said to Saul, the king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine that was Goliath, the Philistine. Your servant, referring to himself, David is the servant, will Go and fight him. Let's not be freaked out by this big, strong, tough guy. I'll go and fight him. But Saul replied, dude, uh, you're actually not able to go out against him because you're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. You're not strong, David. You're a little kid. You're weak. David's a big, tough, strong guy. You're not strong enough. And then David has this to say. Remember, David is the guy that wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. This is what David has to say. But David said to Saul, in his youth, right, in this emotionally intense time in his life, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. David was a shepherd. When David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, he, he's not, when he's referring to what it means to be a shepherd, there's this emotional relationship to being a shepherd because he was one. And he says, look, I was a shepherd. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. I fight lions. Like, that's what shepherds do. I'm not scared of Goliath. I fight bears. And then he has this to say. And he's like, when it turned on me, after I was wrestling with a bear, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. I kill bears with my hands. I fight with lions and win. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. That's what a shepherd is like. When David is a young man, he's like, this is what it means to be strong, tough, intense, and bad to the bone. I kill bears. I fight with bears and win. I fight with lions and win. When it turned on me, I grabbed it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. That's what it means to be a shepherd. And David's conception of what, of what a shepherd is is not weak. Not weak sauce, all right? This uncircumcised Philistine referring to Goliath will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. He's like, that dude over there who's dissing God, he's gonna be like the bear I beat up yesterday because he's messing with the one true God. The Lord, the personally named Yahweh who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear is gonna rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then what happened was David hit Goliath in the head with a rock, knocked him out, and then cut off his head because shepherds aren't weak, they're strong. And David experiences the reality of the strength of being a shepherd, and when he's writing, the Lord is my shepherd, at the deepest level of his heart, I believe 
at the deepest level of his heart, he thinks about the sweetest and most intense battle that he has ever been a part of. He thinks about the reality that when he was a little kid, he beat up lions and bears. And when he thinks about God, this personal God that can have a relationship with me and interact with me, he thinks, man, God's not weak. He's strong. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherds fight bears and win. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh, the Lord is my shepherd. Real strong, not weak. God is not weak, he's strong. That's what David is trying to tell us in the first five words of Psalm 23. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, this personally knowable God who can have a relationship with me. Man, I can allow the, the deepest emotionally resonant things into my heart and into my mind and into my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus because God is not weak, he is strong. God is not weak, he is strong. The Bible teaches that up and down. And people that have been following for Jesus for a while will tell you, dude, it's true. God, even though in the midst of my circumstances and challenges and the junk that I have to face and deal with every day of my life, the confusion, the nonsense, the, the addiction, the, the, the abuse, the, the diagnosis, the, the, the death, the, the fear, man, I cannot handle this on my own. I don't have what it takes to deal with this pressure, with this fear, with this uh, feeling of betrayal. And so I would ask you again, be honest with yourself in this moment. Where is your heart at? And, and, and where do you feel like, man, I do not have what it takes to deal with this health issue or this money issue or this family issue or this mental health issue or this, or, or, or this, or this desire to like achieve some kind of corporate ladder climbing or, or prove myself in, in the company or prove myself at school. I'm telling you guys, I deal with this all the time. I constantly am in situations where I'm trying to bring my own strength and be like, check it out. Look at how strong I am. I'm getting it done. Like, look at how I got good grades. Like I showed up at the meeting 10 minutes in advance and everything. I have the best presentation or whatever. And I'm like, I'm bringing this all to the, to the table. Like, this is what's gonna make me feel justified and excited about life. This is what's gonna give me value. And I think we all, in a way, deal with that. We all do that, right? We, we, we have these challenges and these fears and this confusion. And we feel like, man, the only way to, to combat this pain and this nonsense and this confusion is to just grit my teeth, grind as hard as I can to get it done, and to try to exert my own strength to accomplish the purposes that I'm trying to accomplish in my life. And the Bible would say, man, you need God's strength for that. God is the one that's not weak. God is the one who is strong. God is strong. God's not weak. He's strong. And the way that that is most clearly exemplified for us in the Bible and in our experience of life and in the reality of the historical person of Jesus is, is, is the reality that he died for us on a cross. And that, and that in, in the, even though Jesus, the Bible teaches, is himself is God. The Bible says that God, who has existed eternally and, and, and is perfect, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Bible says that we were created, human beings were created to have a relationship with God, but that this thing called sin interferes with our ability to relate with God. And then we all, in one way or another, have fallen short of this perfection of God. He wants to have a perfect relationship with us, but, but sin has fractured that, that relationship. But the Bible teaches that he who was without sin, Jesus, who was without sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when we think about strength at the absolute highest level, and when we think about the reality of who God is, the fact that God is strong, we can look to the person of Jesus who has this to say about himself. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. And so we see that at the absolute central event in human history, in the crucifixion of, of Jesus of Nazareth, we see the most profound exertion of strength. And that exertion of strength is found in himself humbled and, and naked and, and, and spit upon and, and beaten to a pulp and nailed to a cross. That is the true, profound, pure, and complete example of what strength is. Jesus is the good shepherd. The ultimate strength is found in the person of Jesus and him crucified and resurrected. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what it means to be a good shepherd. Yes. And so what I want you guys to do as you're thinking about this stuff, I know it's intense, 
is to think, again, where am I at in my heart right now? Because I've got this nonsense happening in my life. Whether or not you believe in Jesus or not, you're trying to figure it out. We're all going through stuff. We're all trying to figure it out, right? And so I'm here to ask you guys this question. Where, where, is this doing anything to your heart? Do you think, yeah, man, there are some real serious pain. There is some pain and confusion and nonsense in my life. And I need, this sounds good. I need to, I, I wanna know more about that or embrace it. And so I'm asking you to, to consider uh, what, what this dude Paul said in, in uh, his se- second letter uh, to this church uh, in, in Corinth. Paul was a, um, a church planter and he was like a pastor and he had a lot of stuff going on. But he was always kind of afflicted by a bunch of pain and confusion because, you know, that was just a part of his life, as it is a part of all of our lives. And he cries out to God. He says, God, I got this thorn in my flesh. I got this pain and this confusion. I've been jacked up. I've been abandoned. I've been hurt. I've been abused. I've been, I've been exposed to all kinds of nonsense in my life. What's the deal? I thought you were the good shepherd. I need your help. I thought you were strong, God. I thought you were strong. Help me, help me, help me. And he says, this is what God said to Paul. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. That is where the ultimate strength is found in the person of Christ and him crucified. He's like, this is what strength looks like. Boom, this is strength right here. The the servant, the servant king who comes not to to prove something, but to to show his love and to to die for for the people that that are far from God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And when Paul looks at this idea of Jesus, when he looks at the reality that Jesus perfectly reveals who God is, and that that God is a God of love and sacrifice and humble, servant-hearted, other-centered compassion and kindness, God says to him, dude, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, the power that I have, the real secret sauce power is made perfect in weakness. And so you have to recognize that weakness and be willing to identify it and and accept it. He goes on to say, therefore, Paul, reflecting on this profound truth of Almighty God, says, therefore, I'm gonna boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I'm stoked that I'm weak so that Christ's power may rest on me. And I'm here to tell you guys, it is an extremely liberating thing to recognize that you are not strong enough to get the stuff done on your own, right? The the, the confusion, the nonsense, the pain, the fear, the anxiety, the, the, the wounds. I can't deal with that on my own. I'm weak. I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. And to the extent that I recognize that I'm weak, I can't do it on my own. To the extent that I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, Christ's power may rest on me. That's why when I think about the nonsense in my life, when I think about the fear, confusion, anxiety, depression, mental health, money, school, relationships, corporate ladder, keeping up with the Joneses, that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight myself in my weakness. For that, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's what it means to be strong. God is infinitely strong and perfect. God is not weak, God is strong. But for me, as a person who is made to have a relationship with him, a correct relationship in which I recognize his unlimited strength as as manifestly evident in the cross, to interact with that and engage with that requires that I recognize that I'm weak. And that is true strength. True strength is found in our, our weakness. God shows his perfect, infinite strength on the cross and in the resurrection, and our capacity to interact with that is found in recognizing weakness and engaging with him in that way. And so what I wanna leave you guys with this week is a pretty simple, a pretty simple statement. I think it even made it into the uh, programs that you guys have, and it is that God is not weak. God is not weak. Not weak. God is not weak. He is strong. God is not weak. He is strong. And so I just, that, that's, that is so the truth. I'm just here to tell you this true thing, that God is not weak. He is strong. And I think some of you guys need to hear that today because you've got this tattered picture of God. You've been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by in relationships and different things. And you're like, man, I feel like God is weak. What I've seen, the picture I've seen of God 
is a God who just has a bunch of people that follow him that are kind of hypocritical and like self-righteous and, and they like dress up on Sundays, but the rest of the week they're obnoxious or whatever, or they, they're just like, they're not, they, they, this is lame. And what I'm here to tell you is that, yeah, God is not weak. The, the, the picture of who God is, the picture that we have in our minds, if it is tattered or frayed or, or confused or inaccurate, we need to go back to the negative and we need to say, no, definitively, the Bible teaches as clear as a bell, God is not weak. God is not weak. He is strong. God is strong. And so what I'd like for you guys to do as you interact with that idea is to just uh, kind of practically apply it in, in this way, okay? And this goes for everybody in this room. You could have been following Jesus for your whole life, or you could just, you know, it could be your first time here. And again, we just can't say enough how grateful we are to have uh, people who might just be investigating or visiting. We, we really love you, and we, we care about you, and we, we, we just want you to feel loved and welcomed. So if it's your first time, we, love, we really love you for real. But this is what I'm going to challenge everybody in this room to do, okay? And it starts out like this. You have to just be honest with yourself and inventory the junk. Inventory the pain, inventory the things in your life that have caused you to, to think about God in the way that you have, right? And, and maybe there, there are aspects of, of his nature and his, and his character that you're like, it's not clear. And I would just ask that you first identify and, and inventory the junk. These are the things in my life. It's money, it's sex, it's addiction, it's whatever that thing is for you. I don't, I don't know all of you guys. I'm sure there's as many different people in this room there are that many different pain or confusion or different circumstances. So just be honest with yourself in this moment. And even as we worship, just be honest with yourself. Inventory the junk and then recognize your weakness. Say, man, this thing requires more strength than I have. I do not have the capacity to do this on my own. I feel like I'm only gonna feel validated if I achieve X level money status. I feel like I'm only gonna make it if this crazy situation works itself out in this way. And I have to do it myself. I have to do it myself. I have to somehow strive and grind my teeth and, and make it happen. But I'm here to tell you that until you recognize your weakness, you're never gonna really be able to embrace and experience the freedom of God's strength as shown in the cross. So inventory of the junk, recognize your weakness. This goes for everybody in this room. And embrace the strength of the good shepherd to say, man, there's more nonsense in my life than I can deal with, more pain, confusion, heartache, feelings of betrayal than I can deal with. I'm not strong enough to deal with it on my own. I'm not strong enough, but I can embrace the strength of one who is strong enough, and that is found solely in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you embrace the strength of the good shepherd, there is an unlimited adventure to be had as you follow him, grow in an experience of his grace and his love as he helps you navigate through the complexities and nonsense of life. You can embrace the strength of the good shepherd. And if you've never done that, you could do that right now. You could do it at this moment. And you could say, you know what? I recognize that there's some nonsense in my life that I can't deal with, including my own heart and my own sin. I believe that you're the king who got it done and I embrace your forgiveness. It's very, very simple, but it is extremely uh, beautiful and captivating and good. And so I would challenge you, if you've been on the fence about following Jesus or you maybe some, something about the name of Jesus is clicking for you in a different way, I'm begging you, as, as a person who has been progressively transformed in my heart and in my mind in an experience of the grace of God, I am begging you to embrace the strength of the good, of the good shepherd. I'm, I'm begging you to embrace the strength of the good shepherd because he will liberate you. And his strength is made perfect in weakness. And if you leave the, the, the belief that like I have to achieve something other than just like I can't achieve, I can just be forgiven and experience his love, it's, it's, it's the best thing ever. It's just the best thing ever. It's the good news. And I just, I, I'm begging you to think about it for real. And come talk to somebody that works here or whatever on staff. Please come talk to us because Jesus loves you and he died for you. God loves you. He, he made you. He has a, a beautiful plan and purpose for your life. Embrace the strength of the good shepherd. So I'm going to invite the band up. And as they're making their way up, I just want to ask you guys to imagine with me, if you can, what it would look like as you're thinking about this thing, as you're thinking about this weight and this pain and this confusion in your life, right, that we all have. Imagine what it could potentially look like in your life to be liberated from 
the feeling of having to like carry that weight on your own, to have to strive to achieve some status or whatever? What would it look like in your daily life if you were freed from having to manipulate certain social situations to cast the kind of light on yourself that you want to prove something to somebody else? What would it look like to not worry when, like, if somebody comes over and the house isn't perfectly put together and you could just be free to engage with them in love? What would it look like to not be concerned uh, about um, other people's opinions of you, but to know that in weakness you are shown love by the perfect strength of Almighty God? I'm here to tell you that that is an unbelievably captivating, exciting, enjoyable, pleasant, peaceful, and restful experience of life. A restful experience of life that has been given to you to, to, to experience rest even in the adventure, even in the, 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 the variety of experiences that are, that, that are laid out for you to, to experience real adventure and to do that in a way that is liberated from the constraints of thinking that I have to do it on my own because God himself is the one who is not weak. God is not weak. He is strong. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. God is not weak. He is strong. Yeah, Lord. You're not weak. You're strong. And so I ask right now that... You just show your strength uh, in this room by drawing people into a deeper relationship with you right now. There are probably people in this room who, who don't know, you know exactly where they stand uh, with you. Father, I ask that you touch their hearts right now. By the power of your spirit, I ask that you come into this room in a significant way and fill it up with an awareness of your love. And for the person that you know, maybe is just ch- checking it out or visiting, I ask that you help them to just experience the, the liberation and the joy of engaging with you in your strength, Father. I ask that you cause us all as a, as a, as a group of people who, who have been given the opportunity to, 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 to talk about you, Jesus, to just praise you in a way that really uh, corresponds to your perfection and your beauty and your love and your glory. I ask that you fill this place up with some thunderous praise right now because you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. You are the good shepherd. You lay down your life for the sheep. You call us in to an experience of your love, and I'm asking that we experience that here right now. Come, meet us here, righteous Father, in this room. You are the king of glory. You reign supreme. You love us. You died to save us. Reveal to us in this moment by the power of your spirit that that is true and good and really cool. You're the king. Praise your name. Father, amen.